Hello, I'm Ashley. And I'm Gary. And welcome to episode six of Choose Film, a real retrospective podcast, uh, where we take a deep dive into a random film chosen by our guest host. And today we are joined by the wonderful Gordon J. Miller, who has decided that this episode we will be taking a look at the film Alien 3. Thank you so much for joining us, Gordon. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi guys. Hi Ashley. Hi Gary. Hi. Thanks so much for for inviting me along to this. I've I've, I've listened to your previous podcasts and I'm really intrigued by it. It's right. lovely to meet you two and um, Gary. We've met before. Yeah. And I've, I've been following you guys' progress online. It's good to see you guys out there just doing stuff. And I think we need to in the current climate just mm -hmm. keep going and help each other along. So I, I was really honoured to be to invited along to this podcast today. So thanks, guys. And we're all film fans. Um, and I thought it was a real challenge when Gary got in touch, um, where we're going to go with this, because if we're honest, you know, people always ask you, what's your favorite film? What's your top 10, whatever. And it's a really hard thing to do. So when you get a theme and the theme was uh, the first feature, first feature film, that kind of narrowed it down. So I started thinking, because I've been around for a wee while, you know, who, who's a sort of first time director? But I guess something kind of sparked that recently there's been quite a lot of controversy around Star Wars because Star Wars is, is kind of sacred to fans. And so when you put prequels out and then recently sequels out, sometimes if the fans aren't happy, there's a huge backlash. And we've certainly witnessed that with Star Wars, especially Last Jedi. We've, we've seen that. It's very, very contentious, which is, which is kind of an interesting thing. There's a kind of fan ownership thing goes on. And that the first time I experienced that was in the early 90s when I was an art student. And when a film called Alien 3 came along, and because of the success of the first two films, which were critically acclaimed and huge box office smashes, and just look who's involved in these films, there was huge anticipation, anticipation that's quite difficult to say, <laughs> and expectation for Alien 3. Now remember, we had no internet, no mo mobile phones, we just had chat, and picking up snippets in magazines and stuff, and there was chat about Alien 3 coming. So when it finally arrived, I went to see it, in 1992 in the cinema, wide-eyed, buzzing, because loved the first two films. And it was interesting. Um, I, I personally really enjoyed it, I did. But afterwards, the chat, I was, I was kind of over, well, kind of surprised at the reaction against it. And because of that, I thought it's gonna be an interesting film to talk about, but also, I'm, actually, I'm not sure if you've seen the film before. No, I've not, and I've not seen Alien or Aliens. Well, that, to me, that's really exciting. And it's a wonderful thing about films. And you'll find that as you go through life, you see a film for the first time at a certain age, certain stage in your life, where you're at with your work, relationships, whatever. And when you, when you move on, the film doesn't. So when you revisit it when you're older, it's fascinating to see. And I, I think it's wonderful that you've not seen this before. So you'll have a completely fresh perspective. And I'm really excited to hear your view of it. And I know, Gary, you, you've seen a lot of films and you're an accomplished filmmaker yourself. So you'll, you'll have your ideas about this. I'd love to hear a different generation viewing it because films are immortal. So we can jump back in and watch them again with a fresh perspective. So, so that's kind of why I sort of chose this film. Can I just ask, when you, when you watched it most recently, did you watch the original theatrical cut or did you watch the, well, it's really the director's cut, but even the director doesn't want to call it a director's cut. So it's called the assembly cut. <laughs> I did. Do you know, I couldn't get hold of the assembly cut and... I mean, we'll, we'll chat through this, but I, I think the assembly cut's incredible, absolutely incredible. Yeah. And I think the theatrical cut, I can understand some of the fan backlash, 
and I can understand the studio side. So I can you know, sit in the fence a wee bit. I can see both sides. So actually, I, I found the, the clips on YouTube from the assembly cut, yeah. which, was, which was helpful. You kind of have to edit it in your own brain. But I, I watched um, the theatrical release, which is, which is the one that kind of sparked and ignited all that controversy back in 1992. Yeah. So I, I watched the assembly and you watched the theatrical and I think Ashley watched the theatrical as well. Yeah. So before we get into the points anyway, I'll, maybe we should state what the differences are. But let's hear what Ashley thought of the film before we do that. Um, so this was not my usual type of film that I would go for. I didn't, I didn't really connect with it a lot, but actually watching it and having to find points about it made me view it in a different way as a, as opposed to just sitting watching an alien sort of sci-fi film. So I did find parts of it really interesting and I liked certain parts. I like to hone in on certain parts, but it's definitely... A sort of style that I didn't really connect with. So mm-hmm. yes, shall we give our ratings of the film? So my rating is a very halfway five out of ten for this one, which I think will be a little bit different to some of you guys rating. Okay, I'm going to tell you my rating from 1992, seven out of ten, all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say that based on the first two aliens, I'll give ten out of ten absolutely alien and aliens 10 out of 10 so based on that however i've changed i've changed my rating and i can save it for later if you like but i've changed my rating on alien 3 after revisiting it this weekend no i would i would tell us now and then we'll see if that changes again by the end of the episode (laughs) (laughs) okay ashley's is a very very honest review and that that reflects most people who have seen it so i I totally understand it totally get it but actually my rating is now 8 out of 10 after reading the background, after seeing how this young director survived through development hell and actually got something out there, and actually just looking at the aesthetic of the film, which I think is kind of beautiful in a, in a weird, bleak sort of way. It's really powerful from a filmmaking point of view. So revisiting it and just bearing in mind there's some massive flaws in it, which we'll, we'll go into chat about. My rating's gone from 7 out of 10 from the original theatrical release in 1992 to all these years later, it's up to 8 out of 10. I will go for seven point nine. It's oh. not. It's not. To me, it's not. It's not quite. Not quite an eight because there's so many films that I love that is like an eight out of ten. But I've never once put this film on and not enjoyed it. When I go to start the Alien franchise, which is actually really funny as well, Gordon, because I just watched the first two like a few weeks ago. But now I'm going to have to go and watch Alien Resurrection, Alien vs. Predator now. Um, I never quite go, ugh, Alien 3. I'm still quite excited to watch that next one. Alien Resurrection is a different kettle of fish all in, and maybe we can quickly chat about that at the end. But yeah, so 7.9 for for me on that. I have to say as well, I'm really bad for hearing the name of a film and instantly going Rotten Tomatoes and then looking at Alien and Aliens which was like 97% and then Alien 3 was 43% if I'm right and I think I was like oh what am I going to watch here (laughs) so I think I shouldn't have done that and I need to get out of that habit. (laughs) Uh, Well we quickly as well just quickly get out there some of the terminology of the different alien creatures and things like that just for MD listening who maybe isn't quite a fan of it so 
the main alien in it is a xenomorph, which is the big one. So if we use that word, mm-hmm. that's what it is. The face hugger mm-hmm. is the wee spider looking one that gives you the creeps. And the chest buster is when it first pops out of whatever the, the living creature is. So just quickly, we can go just name off some of the differences between the assembly cut and the theatrical cut. So the first one being there was an extended opening of when they're like heaving her shipwreck in off the out the water. Um, the characters, the prisoners, are actually given a lot more screen time, so they're not quite red shirts, so to speak, to use Star Trek terminology. In the theatrical cut, the chest buster comes out a dog, and in the assembly cut, it's an ox. So, that makes sense with mm-hmm. some of the stuff I was reading. Okay, yeah. okay. And Crazy Golok, I don't know if he was given actually a name in the theatrical cut, he, they trap the alien and he lets it back out because he thinks it's some sort of mythical creature. And then there's the chest buster scene at the end. So as Sigourney Weaver, Ellen Ripley, decides to throw herself into the furnace, in the theatrical cut, the alien pops out of her. But in the assembly cut, it's not. And it's more of a religious ending. There's probably more, but I think those are the main bullet points of the differences in that. Ah, interesting. I need to go and watch that cut then as well. <laughs> We've not even got started. It is a better film, the theatrical mm-hmm. cut. Eh, sorry, the assembly cut. Mm-hmm. So just for our listeners um, who might not have seen this film or want a little recap, here is a little synopsis of the film. So... Ellen Ripley is the only survivor when she crash lands on a bleak wasteland inhabited by former inmates of the planet's maximum security prison. Once again, Ripley must face the alien as it hunts down the prisoners and guards. Without weapons or modern technology of any kind, Ripley leads the men into battle against the terrifying creature. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into it. This is rumor control, here are the facts. going to go round in a circle picking our three positive points. So my first positive point is actually Clement and Ripley's relationship. I thought it was beautiful and it was so needed in a film like this. It was so sincere and real amongst such a bizarre setting and bizarre storyline. It just felt so real and it felt so something that I could connect to and the first instance um, that I saw that was when they're talking together 
I think it's in the kind of main part of the prison and it, there's no one else around and he's just kind of speaking about um it's the history of the prison yeah talking about the history of the prison and there's a little bit of sarcasm and it's not overdone at all and it's just a really beautiful conversation and you see the connection there which really really feeds well into later on when spoiler he is killed by the alien and the sort of hurt there and I really really enjoyed that I just thought it was a, a beautiful relationship and set up really well as well because I didn't expect it from their first meeting. Yeah and I think he's got such a an interesting backstory as well which isn't the, the information on that backstory isn't given to us right away mm-hmm. so you know there's something not quite right the way the other prisoners and the guy that runs the prison I can't remember his name in it Andrews. Andrews is the, the guy. Who yeah. Runs, yeah. Yeah. Him and Clemens have this interesting relationship where anytime Andrews wants him to do something, he almost blackmails him into it because to keep his past hidden. So you're dying to know what it is. And that makes you not really trust him that much. Even though him and Ripley are so close, you're like, oh, something's not right here. And then when he actually tells you the backstory about accidentally giving someone the wrong medication and causing numerous deaths, you sympathise even more with him mm-hmm. right before he's then taken from us. So, oh, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree, Ashley, that you picked up on that. And I think it's, it's always important in a film, whatever the aesthetic, whatever the appeal, whatever the story is, there has to have a human heart. It has to, no matter how good it looks. And we've all seen films that haven't worked. You spent a lot of money on them, but you've not felt engaged or connected. It's not been relatable. And God love Ripley. What, what a time she's had. <laughs> she went to her work one day. And ended up, you know, get all our pals got, you know, wiped out by aliens and had all these horrendous things happening. It's, it's kind of like a curse, which is part of the sort of the religious theme that goes through it. But what, what happened when the, the EEV crash landed on Fury 161, the, this remote bleak prison planet? And, and back to the assembly cut, Gary, there's another deleted scene and it's part of just before the ox pull the EEV out of the water, which I think they should have kept in. It's so powerful. And it goes back to having no technology, no weapons, etc. Is... Clemens, the doctor, he finds her washed up on shore. So in the theatrical cut, she's inside the um, hypersleep, mm-hmm. whatever it's called, <laughs> sleep thingy. But in, in the assembly cut, she's covered in oil um, from, and debris from the crash. She's also covered in, this is pretty gross, lice and stuff and, and bugs because the plant is infested. It's, it's really the back end of the universe. And immediately you sense compassion in this guy. He's a big guy. He sees a woman who's so vulnerable. She's, she's been in an accident and he's a doctor and instinctively he, he comforts her and he picks her up. So, so that bond starts. So although the theatrical release suggests something a bit more suspicious about him, this kind of lends itself to, to the humanity. And interestingly, the character's name is Jonathan Clemens. And I, I want to talk later on about the, the, one of the original screenplays which was about monks and the the main monk in it was called John and he had a connection, this kind of spark with Ripley. So he's very, he's evolved from this character. And interestingly, Richard E. Grant read for the part. There is a clip of Richard E. Grant dressed as Clemens, um, but he's kind of, I don't know what the polite word is. (laughs) He's a great actor, but he's kind of quirky and he was quite young at the time. Whereas Charles Dance has the stature. He's a, he's a big guy. And what I really like about him is how gentle his voice is. And, and you'll know, Gary, from, from filmmaking, it's, it's very different from theatricality, 
where you kind of ramp up. You just got to dial it down, dial it down, and just get get the mic in closer and just just feel how, how people actually talk. And if you look at Charles Dance, he's, he's talks so quietly, but he's hiding something. He's hiding something because he doesn't want Ripley to dislike him. It's mm-hmm. not because, you know, we're, we're led to believe he's got some really dodgy, but he made a mistake. He was, he was overtired. He was overworked. He made a mistake. He paid for it. And, and in fact, he volunteered to stay on after that. So, so I, I strongly agree with, with Ash. I picked up that as well. And I think in a general terms, I think the characters are really strong in Alien 3. The dialogue is brilliant and the acting is superb. Charles S. Dutton's another one um, who's the sort of leader of, of the prisoners. But yeah, I, I strongly agree with that, that point you've picked up on, Ashley. It, it just seems like the sort of first instance on that uh, planet that there's been a real human connection. They all seem to be quite quite sterile and yeah they do they do have their jokes that they play on each other and they call you know Aaron with the nickname of 85 with his IQ and stuff and that's lovely but I just feel like that connection was probably something that was missing from the whole planet um and it was just beautiful to see so yeah that was my very first point yeah I'm going to jump to my second point and I'll come back to my first because I could actually go either way with these because what was spoke about ties in nicely. But my second point is, again, just on the characters as well. And the performances, I think, are great. Obviously, Sigourney Weaver just knocks it out of the park. But uh, Charles S. Dutton, who plays Dylan, uh, Charles Dance, obviously Clemens, and Brian Glover, uh, who's, who's Andrews. And nobody is phoning it in at all. They're all given it their all and we'll probably get into this anyway but the amount of rewrites and problems on set and producers just getting away I'm surprised none of these just were like I'm just here for my wage and nothing else you know and as I said earlier with the other characters in it they are more fleshed out as well and it's just a pity they, they, they lost that in the theatrical cut like they've all got their quirks and they've got their pasts and they've also got their personalities they don't feel like they're just there to be killed off. They they genuinely look petrified. <laughs> like, and as as Gordon said, so I've got a wee note here. Like, Charles dances Clemens. He's just so bloody charming. <laughs> like, he's so lovely, and he's got a way with his words that honestly, he could probably get me into bed the way he talks. You know, <laughs> um, I know. Obviously, there's been. Uh, lots of changes with with the script, but like nobody does anything that's silly or stupid just to move the plot along. Like every move those characters make seem genuine to to that character. Sorry, I'm I'm rambling on here, but no, also just when we were talking about Ripley crashing on this prison planet that's got these men almost isolated from the rest of the world, it's this new temptation that is now there for them it's good that's another great thing because she now doesn't just have to worry about the alien it's these men as well and i think someone says the line uh, nobody's seen a woman in years these men are a threat she almost needs to overcome their temptations before she can lead them to like salvation for a better word or or lead them to their death depending on how you look at it <laughs> um and i've just got a monologue actually here that is, is by Dylan, um, and I think it's just a great, quick monologue that he delivers when they're putting Hicks and Newt into the, the furnace, 
and it's cross-edited with either the dog, the chestbuster and the dog, or the ox. But just the words of it is, why are the innocent punished? Why the sacrifice? Why the pain? Then he says, there aren't any promises, nothing certain, only that some get called, some get saved. She won't ever know the hardships and grief of those left behind. Now that bit's really great because they've managed to, obviously Newt and Hicks have passed away, but they literally won't know the hardship and grief that's about to about mm-hmm. to happen. Uh, we commit these bodies to the void with a glad heart, for within each seed there is a promise of a flower, and that cross-editing with this alien being born, but also, as we find out later, the seed in Ripley, because mm-hmm. she's actually got one inside of her. Uh, within each death, no matter how small, there's always a new life, a new beginning. Amen. And I just think it ties in a lot with the whole early drafts of it being quite a religious film as well. So I could go on about the performances and monologues, but that one monologue and the way obviously he performs it a hundred times better than me reading it off of an <laughs> iPad. But yeah. So one of the best signs for me of a great performance is not noticing it. You know, I didn't I don't have any points down here about the acting because it just wasn't something I focused on at all. So I totally agree with you. And that that's so important. It's so subtle as well that if you think of the best actors, you don't think of them acting, you think of them as a person. And that, that's where casting's so important, to cast the right person. I think they were right to put Charles Dance uh, in that role rather than Richard E. Grant. And that's no disrespect to him whatsoever. It's just the right person for the right role. And if you, if you, just, if you consider Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, it's instant. There's no, you don't have to pitch that, you don't have to push it. 30 years later, he's Hannibal Lecter, effortlessly so. And he's made, he's, you know, he's made some different choices through the films of the years. They're not all brilliant. And, you know, that, that's, that comes down to casting. The casting was bang on. I agree with both of you about Dylan. He's got a charisma and he's got a strength. And my God, who's strong enough to take on these guys, the worst criminals in the worst place in the universe, and he's the boss. They're not going to mess them. So he's got that kind of quiet, dignified power over them. But he's also an honest man. And that comes through his speech. I thought that speech was beautifully done. It was beautifully made. And it comes back to my sort of, my, my posits are kind of overall, there, there's a few nitpicky things overall, but if you look at the theme, if you look at the colours, and also the soundtrack, it's, it's an epic soundtrack by Elliot Goldenthal before he went on to do, you know, all these other huge blockbusters. It all comes together beautifully, and that's, that's a really well-made scene. And I think a lot of the fans were so distracted by, you know, the biggest bugbear as a choice made at the very beginning of the film that they, they were unforgiving for the rest of it. And actually, if you look at it objectively, it's beautifully made by, I think um, David Finch was 25 or 26. And all he'd done was, he'd done a Madonna Vogue video and some, some adverts for Nike and he worked with ILM. That was his first feature. So imagine having this sort of the vision to tie all these different elements together and, and portray something so beautifully. So, but I think, you know, fighting the corner for Alien 3, these are great characters. These are great actors, um, actors and great dialogue. And I think when you watch it with fresh eyes and forget about potential disappointments in the story, um, it, it's a far more enjoyable experience. Just to recap uh, on how they lost their audience before the film starts is if you watch this straight off the back of Aliens, like the young girl in it, Newt and Corporal Hicks are like two of the best characters ever written and they worked so well uh, with Ellen Ripley. And then people were excited when Alien 3 came out to go, where, where is this story going to go next with these these three characters? Or, and Bishop as well, I guess, the, the, the android. So those four characters. 
Three and a half. Three and a half, yeah. <laughs> um, where are they going to go with these characters? And then what they didn't, they just killed them all off. So right away killing off these lovable characters, they lost their audience right away. So then the rest of the film, they're basically trying to claw this audience back. And that's a really hard thing to do. So if you go in knowing the, these characters aren't going to exist in this film, I think you do see it with very, very different eyes. Totally agree, Gary. And that's my, you know, I'm, I'm not a negative person at all and always look for something constructive to say. But that, I think that choice just w- was a, a bit of a disaster, um, being completely honest about it. Because if you look at Aliens, I, I watched the end of Aliens again, that Ripley has missed out on so much. She was in hypersleep for so long. She had a daughter. And you see a photo of her as an older woman in Aliens. And incidentally, that photo is Sigourney Weaver's mother. So there is a, there is a likeness there. And she, she bonds with Newt, and Newt's a survivor, just this badass kid who's in LV-426's colonized planet, and she survives, and nobody else does. And she bonds with Ripley, and later on in, in Alien, she ends up in a, a nest in a hive, and Ripley rescues her. And then, for what? You know, um, to, to make that choice is to wipe her out straight away. And also Hicks. Hicks was a, a guy, a, a soldier who, who was a dutiful, he was also a good guy, he was one of the good guys. And... You know, they took him out as well and they you know, kind of splatted what was left of poor Bishop, who was actually a, a good synthetic person. So without banging on about it too much, I think certainly at the time, that was the biggest controversial point. In 92, why the hell did they kill off Newt and um, Hicks and just turn um, Bishop in a pile of rubbery stuff at the very beginning of the film? Because, Gary, I know you're a fan of, of The Walking Dead and there, there's, there's scope to... You know, you'd never know when you're going to lose a main character, and that's exciting. And that just keeps you on edge. And throughout Alien 3, at any point, they could have lost Hicks or Newt or, or whatever, but they chose not to. And that choice, I, I, it comes from Vincent Ward's script from, from The Wooden Planet. Um, but I, I think that's caused so many problems over the years, and that's kind of skewed people's perspective of it. So to watch it again, knowing that and putting it to the back burner, um, it's a great film. I really enjoy the film, but I think it could have been better if Newt went on yeah, and also, obviously, they bring back Scurney Weaver again for Alien Resurrection. And it's, it's it's so easy to look back and say, this is what I would have done, obviously. But what they could have done is kept Newt in it, let Scurney Weaver out of the franchise after Alien 3, and then follow Newt growing up, and she becomes your new your new lead. But... We could we could come up with we could come up with all these ideas until until we're exhausted. But absolutely. Uh, so, Gordon, do you want to take us to one of your first points? Sure. So I, I agree with you guys. You know, um, and it's it's this is the interesting about this film. It's so debatable. There's so much to, to chat about. But um, I enjoyed uh, the production design. Um, I enjoyed the 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 huge sets that they built down in, in Pinewood. Um, I enjoyed the costumes. I love the fact that Sigourney Weaver shaved her head. I thought that was really cool. And we have to think about um, the character Ripley through cinematic history as one of the few amazing leading female characters who's strong, who's smart than everyone else. It's just a brilliantly written character with depth and, and, you know, as it should be. And for her to make that decision as well was really cool. It's just kind of not pandering to previous Hollywood stereotypes, just going with it, just a survivor. And who did they turn to when, when Andrews kind of disappeared up into the roof of the, the canteen, it was like, who's going to lead? And naturally, it's Ripley. She's a natural leader. So, but I think they look really cool. And I, I love the costumes. I love those kind of parka jackets with the big hood and the Whalen Jutani patch. It was really cool. So 
So I would say production design and look, and also within that sort of sphere, the camera angles are almost all on the ground, which is really unusual in a film. And if you watch the film again, it's almost all ceilings and looking at them up the way. And that's the sort of alien perspective. That's this kind of, this new alien, which David Fincher wants to be like a puma or a panther, kind of stealthily skulking around, rather than this big, tall, imposing a creature was in the original. So I would say the overall aesthetic of the film, and of course, film is an aesthetic medium, and we want more than that. We always do. But I think visually, it was a, a really powerful film. It was, it's kind of dated in some of the effects and some of the, some of the frames. You can see a kind of black line around the sort of composite scenes, um, which, you know, is of the time. It was pre-CGI or in, CGI was in its infancy. It was around at the same time as Terminator 2, which transformed everything. But I, you, you can forgive that with time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that actually goes on to my next point with the, well, sort of, the special effects that were used when Ripley reawakens Bishop and it he's kind of like his face is kind of half there there's white stuff pouring out the side um, and he has the sort of digitized voice melted face I thought that the special effects there were so so on point they were absolutely brilliant which it did I mean this is one of my nitpicks but some of the other special effects when you were seeing, I think it was kind of outside the planet, um, weren't of that standard, which I didn't understand because when you saw Bishop um, and his, he was only like a head, his face was melting off and it was so, so real the way they did it. It freaked me out a bit actually. Um, but I just, I loved that and I thought that was really, really well done in a way that I didn't expect when I'd seen some of the other effects. I mean, the effects of the, the aliens and the face huggers are fantastic. They're just brilliant. But some of the more outside panoramic uh, effects didn't live up to that standard. So I was just really impressed by the melting bishop. <laughs> Definitely. And it's, this is why I'm, I'm so excited to, to hear your guys' perspective of this film, which is nearly 30 years old. And for you, actually to, to notice how good the animatronics were at that time, because that's all we had in those days. And I would argue strongly that the best era for films is the 70s because you were limited in your physical effects. It was the fear of the unknown and the unseen. If you think about Alien and even Jaws, it, Jaws changed when you saw the big rubber shark coming out. Before that, it was fear of the unseen. And the original Alien was this thing just lurking. And a friend of mine, um, Andy Gurley, um, described it as an oil rig in space that it was so terrifying to be trapped in this big industrial machine with the, the apex predator of all time in there with you, but you only saw little snippets of it. So I, I would argue that during the 90s, things changed. In 1992, I was in art college, and I did a dissertation on the, the makeup effects, because I, I used to want to be a special makeup effects artist, is where I kind of got into acting eventually. And we were kind of worried that CGI was going to take over because of Terminator 2. But then when you see some of the, some of the effects that went on through the 90s and the 2000s, they're not that great. And you, you've got the feeling that the director was excited by this new toy. And let's stick it in there, Star Wars, for example, and have these uh, digital characters. But if you go back to the, the greatest characters in cinema, the greatest scares in cinema, it's what you can't see. So I think it was unfortunate time. It's during the transitional phase of the early 90s that Alien came out. And they actually made that Alien out of puppets. So it wasn't CGI. It was done with blue screen and four or five puppet makers. They even, it's on YouTube, they had a whippet, like a real dog, and they put an alien costume on it because it was so kind of sinewy and thin and kind of resembled, and which I thought was really, really clever and innovative, you know? And if you look at some of the early CGI through the 90s, it's so bad. So I think 
Alien was just unfortunate timing. They used the technology they had at the time, but we can spot it a mile away now. So yeah, fair point. Yeah, and it's how you use that technology as well. Like, because CGI is going to age. I mean, Stan Winston's effects, for instance, in Jurassic Park, is still still great. And then when they had to use CGI, like when the T Rex comes out of the the paddock, it still looks great because uh, Spielberg's decided to hide it in shadows and hide it in the rain. You keep it in darkness. So even if it starts to the CGI starts to look bad, you're blending it into that the, these dark dark backgrounds. Um, and just on Spielberg and on Jaws, I'm pretty sure the pitch for the original Alien was Jaws in space. Just just a wee anecdote, guys. Um, Alien came out in 1979, and I was a nine-year-old kid in primary school. And every week I went round to the, I'm from Inverness, I went round to Greg Street Post Office, and I bought a comic called 2000 AD with Judge Dredd, and it was very Cold War, very, there's a nuclear threat, and there's a lot of post-apocalyptic stories coming out, and Mad Max emerged from that time, and I loved, loved 2000 AD, still love it to this day, and on, on a top shelf, which was weird for, for a comic, was this alien, I thought, what the heck is that, at age nine, so I took it down, opened it up, and it was the artwork of H.R. Giger, and it's it's beyond imagination, and it was absolutely terrifying. So I, I would I would think you know when things don't go quite right, which is Alien Three, when there's lots of tension between studios, there's rewrites, there's a lot of egos involved. People want the best thing, but there's too many cooks ultimately. I think with Ridley Scott back in the original Alien, who's a, a genius director, went on to do Blade Runner shortly after. He connected with H.R. Giger, and that was that's lightning in a bottle. That's what you you cannot pre-plan everything in in development. And they nailed it. So they, they created this, this character. And I can remember being absolutely horrified. And Alien was a horror film. It was not sci-fi. It wasn't action. None of these things. It was a horror. And we used to love, on TV, we only had three channels. And we used to get excited by trailers. And at the end, it was always a sort of deep voice. Only one man could stop him. It was always like that. And at the end, the, the chilling thing was Certificate X. And you're just like, mm. and you just wanted to see it. It was that kind of... Um, you know, don't touch the red button or, or wet, wet paint don't touch or if you've got a plaster in your finger, you're dying to look underneath. It, it sparked something in, 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 you know, the human psyche. And I was fascinated from that time, obviously too young to see it. When, when Aliens came out in 86, I was a 16-year-old, it was an action blockbuster. It was a popcorn movie. Go with your pals, cheer, laugh, scream, cry, all the way through it. And it was, it was a big entertainment. So I, th- I think all those things which were wonderful at the time, they also created anticipation and expectation for for alien 3 and i think that is there's there's a lot of ingredients why something goes right and a lot of it's just blind luck and sometimes when things go wrong there's too much expectation and i think that's part of the the issue sort of leading into alien 3. yeah absolutely Um, so gary do you want to go on to another point of yours yeah so that actually beautifully ties into my next point which is just the whole feel of the film in regards to atmosphere, setting, and, and of course, costume, which we've already kind of uh, spoke about. I guess you need to think, uh, with each of the films and the franchise, how do you up the game? So, as we said, the original Alien went straight for the fear factor, like Jaws in space. So then when James Cameron came in to do Aliens, he switched it and made it an all-out action film. And then Fincher obviously comes on board and then decides to switch back to horror, but that's not enough. So then he goes, I'm going to switch it back to horror, and I'm going to give them absolutely no technology and no weapons, and I'm also going to change 
the look of the alien as well. As we said, it was more like like a dog or a panther. But I do like the post-apocalyptic vibe that's going on, you know, with the characters and like the goggles and the, the robes. It's it's like they almost look like really shitty Jedi's. <laughs> you know? Um but the fact that they are all dressed in greens with their shaved heads, it gives this almost it's almost like this small army of people that have banded together uh, to get through this life. And I I did love the whole prison vibe feel of it. I, I liked the idea of the planet was going to be monks. Uh, sorry, the planet was going to be wooden and it was going to be like this monastery for monks. And I do like that, but I feel like the monks, if they're just this religious group, then you would just automatically think they're not going to survive against this this alien the fact that you make it prisoners who have found religion, well, you know that they can almost take care of themselves to some form because they are crooks, they're criminals. And it's this kind of last of humanity type feel. I know a lot of people dislike that because you see the planet during the day, for instance, whereas in the original Alien and Aliens, everything was set at night. But what's the point of churning out films that are just going to be the same all the time? You know, it doesn't it doesn't work. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it was just, it was on a a huge scale. I know we've already touched on um, the sort of set and stuff. It was on a huge scale that made it feel daunting, but there was also so many twists and turns in the physical makeup of the, the prison that when the alien was on the loose and massive, there was that tension and you didn't know where it was coming from next. And I loved um, the holes in the roof where, where the alien just ended up swooping down and getting people. Um, so yeah, there was that that unknown and the sort of big, um, the fan as well that one of the inmates gets killed on. It's that there is a sense of, it's not only the alien that can kill you, like this is a huge planet, it's infected with lice, it is disgusting. And there's so many other things out there, plus this alien on top. Yeah, I think, you know, I think maybe it's a time now just to sort of mention some of the, the backstory of, of this particular film, just just briefly and, and jump in any time, guys. But again, just, just to reduce it to a word, I would say Alien, yes, is a horror. Aliens is action. And I would also agree Alien 3 has horror aspects, but I would say it's a tragedy. And, you know, look what happens, look at the story. But we're kind of drawn to that as well. We Sometimes you just want a good greet. And it's just like... You know, why would you watch a film like that? But it's part of the human spectrum of emotion. And that's okay to, to process things and to tell these stories and, and to, to deal with them. So, so although it's, it's extremely bleak, I think, you know, it's, it's a tragedy and it doesn't try to be anything else. Um, but I think just briefly going to the backstory, immediately after Aliens, um, the producers, Guyler and Hill, they got hold of, I've got it here actually, it's um, William, William Gibson, um, who wrote the first script and he took two years to write it. Um, and it's what the fans wanted. It's, they all survive, all the main characters survive. The Sulaco's picked up by a, a, a rescue ship. Um, there's a lab on board who have an ulterior motive and they're, they're all about bioweapons. Wayland Yutani are this overbearing company and they want to create these, clone the aliens and form these bioweapons. But that begs the question, who's the enemy? Because we're, we're given this sort of just brief impression that Wayland Yutani is this kind of American, European, Japanese, global corporation, all powerful. So who are the actual enemy? So films always reflect the art of the time. And in the mid-80s, it was still during the Cold War. So it was, it was commies in space. 
So the Soviet Union were the baddies. And in, in Gibson's script, without spoiling it at all, because it's worth reading, there are the, it's the United Progressive People's Front, this sort of extremist Marxist group who are, they're the enemy. And that's who Will and Jutani want to get the upper hand on because they've got big space guns and stuff. But if they've got the xenomorph, the apex predator, then they can unleash that on them. And that's, it's a kind of story around that. One of the bold decisions they made in that script, and again, it's not a spoiler at all, is Ripley doesn't wake up in the hypersleep. She's, she's in a coma throughout the whole thing. And that's when I agree with the studios, because people always think studios are always made out to be the bad guys. I agree with them. It's like, why take the greatest character, this amazing woman, why take her out? Hicks had a great role, Newt had a role, Bishop got new legs, <laughs> was able to get to walk about again. But they took Ripley out of it. And so the studio went, no, we can't do it. So, so they went back and forward. Renny Harlan came on board, who was a big action director. They looked at, he wanted to do an, a humans versus aliens on the alien planet or on Earth. And they didn't go for that either. So he left the project. And then they, they made a gamble. They went to Vincent Ward, who's a kind of more artistic director. And he came out with this thing completely out the blue that the Sulaco crash landed in a lake on this, it's essentially a wooden satellite. It's not really a planet, a planetoid, five miles in diameter. And it crashed in a lake on it. And the monks were there and they were very religious. And all these themes have been echoed into the final production. But they landed and there was no technology because they rejected technology. So Ripley was there. And it was Vincent Ward that decided to wipe out the crew and they carried that on. So there's no real reason for it other than it was in the original script. However, the, I mentioned earlier that the main monk was called John who became the Clemens character. There was the abbot who was a bit dodgy and he was kind of he had ulterior motive and he was the Andrews character and they all evolved. They had no weapons, they had pitchforks because they had sheep and they had farms in this wooden planet. But what a wonderful visual image. And he, there's some drawings online of all the layers and the big fan in Alien 3, which um, young Christopher <laughs> has an unpleasant end with, um, there, there's, there's kind of windmills and stuff inside to keep the air moving around. So, so all these things were echoed. But at some point, and I think Gary made a really good point there, is monks are easy, an easy target. They're pacifists. They're living out in this world. They've, re they've rejected Earth. And there's no real... The, the alien's going to win, quite simply. Whereas the prisoners are pretty hard a lot of these guys you know, Dylan all these guys they can fight their corner they can you know so I think that gives it a bit more of a sort of even even keel but I would also say at the time all, all these films reflect the time and there's computer virus was a big worry around about 1990 we we thought computer virus was going to wipe out all technology in the world in 1990 and also greenhouse gases so there was fires on the wooden planet that were they were blocking their little artificial atmosphere and that was reflective of the time so so all these things were kind of echoing and they may seem irrelevant now but that evolved into Alien 3. And when, when you read this, and I would recommend reading the script, it's free online. You can download it. It's a, I think it's genius. It's brilliant. Because as Gary said, they could have done the same again, but they went way off on a tangent. And again, the studio were like, whoa, whoa, whoa come back here, come back here. So, so as much as the studio gets a hard time, and it's not perfect, the final film, let's look at the journey of it. And I think they did pretty well considering, but... The one thing we'd probably all agree on is wiping out the main characters before the opening scene. Yeah, yeah. There was two two things on that. I wonder if uh, what you were saying there about the bioweapons, obviously that's a running theme through the Alien franchise, but I wonder if that's why they lean more heavily on that in Alien Resurrection. I wonder if they're almost paying homage to that original script. And it's funny about you saying about Ellen Ripley being in a coma in one of those original drafts, because... That was kind of one of the problems, wasn't it, with The Last Jedi, with Princess uh, Leia, uh, or General Leia, I guess, in that one, where she was in a coma, but 
then again they bring her back towards the end, you know, and maybe they could have done something like that where it's all about protecting Sigourney Weaver's character for maybe maybe half of the film and then she wakes up and then comes back and kicks ass. That could have been a, <laughs> a way of doing it as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting hearing about um, the original draft with the monks and the wooden and the fires and stuff and how they have actually implemented all of that. I had no idea about that, but now I really want to read um, more about that version of the script because it's just when you see where these ideas have come from and how they've evolved, actually the perspective on the film is totally different. So now I mean, we're only halfway through the podcast and I usually always say at the end, oh, I need to go back and watch that film again. But now I need to go back and watch that film, 100%. Um, so Gordon, do you want to go on to another one of your points for us? Sure, just, just briefly on the Vincent Ward point, I, I want to give a, a big up to some amazing people in Glasgow. Yes. Um, so last year, um, there's a, a guy I've written, I've written a couple of notes here. Alien 3, the unfilmed script was was made into, adapted into a theatrical production in Glasgow by Stevie Douglas, who runs Scare Scotland, in a collaboration with um, Shoes on a Shoestring, uh, shows, shows on a Shoestring, uh, and it was shown at the Webster Theatre, and it was based on the original Vincent Ward script with the monks, and I thought, how amazing, and Glasgow, centre of the world for this, because it's got global interest. I, I didn't get a chance to speak to Stevie, but I spoke to one of my pals, Rebecca Turner, and she played one of the monks and she brought sort of a physicality of, of theatre. She studied sort of Japanese movement. And the, the main character, John, who went on to be Clemens, was uh, Michael J. Warren, who's a strike fight co in Glasgow. He's, he does work with him in a few things as well. So I, I, I remember hearing some buzz at the time. I don't know if you heard about it, Gary at the time, but it kind of, I knew it was on, but I, I never actually saw it. What they did, because they couldn't obviously build a wooden planet, what they did was they had a narrator. And I love the term they used they were the storytellers. So somebody dressed as a monk in the corner who described the wooden layers, described the fields and the, the sheep and all the sort of stuff and the, the cathedral and the libraries and all these things. And then they played it on stage, but they had an amazing alien costume and they used the theater and the wings and the lighting. And when you saw this familiar sort of shaped head and the mouth coming out, which was absolutely terrifying. And it got a four star review and it was, it was so well done. And it'd be lovely to see that back. But I just think that it, we, we live in a time where we have to be more innovative, we have to be more resourceful, and, and problem solving is always part of the creative process. And I thought, I just want to give a big up to these guys in Glasgow, Scare Scott and Steve Douglas and all the, all the crew who put the Vincent Ward script into a play in, in the best city in Scotland last year. So just a wee big up for these guys. Absolutely, I'll have to check that out. That sounds amazing. And just what a way to to bring that script to life. You know, it was it was created and it's a great sort of insight. And obviously they have used parts in the film. So why not? Why not bring this to life? And I think that's amazing. I'd love to see I'd love to see that done. Yeah, I actually got to see the an early showing of it. They put it on, I think it was almost like a test run the year before and it was in the Flying Duck pub in Glasgow. They've got a wee function suite round and Honestly, it's tiny, tiny wee stage, but they still put on, on this small stage, they put on this full performance of A Wooden Planet. And yeah, I, I know Stevie Douglas really well, uh, and he's got a great team of people that he works with. Uh, Scare Scotland are fantastic with what they do. Yeah, check out Scare Scotland um, in Glasgow. Amazing. So yeah, Gordon, you can go on to your next Alien 3 point. 
I, I think I like I love what they did with the, the actual alien creature itself. Um, if, if this is the apex predator, it has to adapt and evolve to survive in um, the most hostile environments and just keep going. So from being a sort of eight foot tall, big scary guy in a rubber suit with, with pipes coming out his back, it evolved um, to be four, four legged, like either the ox or the Rottweiler, whichever, whichever version you watch, it's the same um, chest burster that comes out. And I think it's brilliant. I think that's where Special Effects really worked. And you see it more in the ox scene, where the, the the little kind of baby alien comes out, the puppetry works. It's it's seamless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for my last point, I thought we have sort of touched on this, but I thought for the third film in a franchise, I know I hadn't seen the first two, but I'd watched the uh, the spoiler videos. I think setting it in that prison environment was a great move. The prison setting already, the audience are not going to trust all the guys that are in this prison. Why are they here? Why are they sort of quarantined on a totally different planet? Like, what have they done that's so bad? That sort of dynamic amongst the inmates and amongst anyone else coming onto this planet was a really, really good direction to go that maybe, I don't know if you guys would have expected it to go in that direction or after seeing Alien and Aliens. I watched it probably when I was a lot younger than what I should have been when I watched it you know I think I watched this film when I was like 10 or something like that and yeah I, I just so I, I loved it I loved the whole look of the alien creature as Gordon said the prison idea it's holding the worst of the worst in regards to prisoners but yet there's no weapons to keep them keep them at bay so to speak and I think is it Andrews it says that it's built on trust as I said earlier uh, Ripley as this temptation and they're going to have to get past that and there's going to be that element of trust to get to get through this you know well I, th- I think what the fans wanted and I class myself in that is I wanted aliens on earth I think that's what we wanted to see and we wanted Newt to, to grow up and be a warrior and you know because as, as time goes by we thought that would be a natural evolution and really powerful and be a new character and um, kind of like Furiosa in, in Mad Max who has strong echoes of Ripley when you see, even with the shaved head. You know, Ripley is is the OG, but Furios is incredible. And they're, they're making a new movie about that, about Furios as, a, as a, a younger character. But I think we want to see it on Earth. And some of the stories that didn't quite make it to screenplay, one of them was Alien Takes New York, a big alien. And it had a bit of a Godzilla vibe. And that's kind of, I'm glad they didn't go with that because it's, it's been done. And it's going to be a box office success. People go along, they might not go and see it again, but it's going to make a lot of money. Um, but there's something about, this this predator coming, this beast, dragon, whatever you want to call it, um, devil coming to Earth, which could be terrifying, and that's where we thought it was going to go because we all loved the, the all the guns and stuff in, in Aliens. We loved the direction it was going, so it was shocking. But I, I I'm glad they did what they did. Honestly, I think it's a bold decision, and I'm glad they went for horror action tragedy because the other side of it is that the actor Sigourney Weaver didn't particularly want to do it again. And why should she? She's a successful actor. She's worked on Broadway. She's multi-talented, diverse roles that she plays. Didn't necessarily just want to play this one, albeit iconic character. So they had to get her on board. She, she loved the sort of, you know, she loved working with David Fincher. She, she enjoyed that. She loved getting her head shaved. You know, she was, because that was bold to do. Because he suggested, that was his first suggestion when he met her. She went, yeah, let's do it. She wanted to push things a bit more. Um, yeah. So I'll go too quickly on to, is it me? No, is it you? Yeah, is it me? you. Yeah. Uh, my third point is actually just on the creature and 
And as we already spoke about, the slightly altered look of the creature worked really well. The CGI was, well, is now piss poor. There's no other way to say it. But on the other hand, when it was going to those close-ups of the creature, the animatronics as it snarls, and like, and when the small mouth comes out the big mouth, and and it hits the hits the victim and the skills and the, the gore just goes everywhere. It's it's great, and I feel like that's one thing that Fincher did was he really upped the gore. <laughs> nice. Okay, so Gordon, do you have any nitpicks for the film? Any things <laughs> that you didn't like? Um, we've mentioned some of the inconsistent alien effects as well that some sometimes it's good and sometimes it's got a black line around it and it just it, it blows it there's there's a lovely moment where ripley's pinned against the wall in the in the sort of clinic area the medic area and the alien comes right up to her to her pro to, you know it's profile to her side which is iconic and you don't know why it doesn't attack her that's that emerges later in the film that kind of that's a little little clue can I actually just say something on that as well that that was another thing that alien free brought to it was that Ellen Ripley is no longer going to get attacked by this creature. So it's almost like she can now hunt it. An alien, and aliens, and I guess even alien resurrection, it's her getting chased again. But now she can go and look for this creature in Alien 3, knowing that it's not going to attack her. And that is something that works really well. Sorry. It is, it is. And... and... You know, you mentioned sort of the gore, which is which is pretty graphic, but it's not too gratuitous. But I mean, it is. It's a pretty gruesome thing that this this monster. But the the first cut that was shown, it was a three hour cut that Fincher showed the executives and the crew, and some people walked out not because they were bored by it, because it was so horrifying and so gory and so graphic. Again, studios sometimes it's a it's a tough job because. You, you want, how realistic do you want to make it and how, how much do you want to scare the audience and how much do you want to traumatise the audience? So it's just kind of, it's difficult. So so I, I totally salute David Fincher for being a brilliant visionary, for being a 25-year-old and creating that. It's absolutely stunning. It's incredible. But at the same time, if that's to go on general, general release, to be seen by a lot of people, decisions have to be made. You know, I, th- I think things are different now. You know, different cuts could come out. But if that's going on the big screen, it's a business as well. They ne- need to get people in to see it. They, they felt very strong that the film would have done better in Europe because arty films do better across here. And the US, there has to be, you know, a lot of, you know, blockbusters are, are an American phenomenon. And, you know, a lot of people go and see them. Yeah, I think I totally agree with you, Gordon. I think probably one of the main reasons why I didn't particularly enjoy the film was because I felt like it didn't go in, I said this with Get Out as well, I felt like it didn't go in deep enough and a lot of the prison prisoners, I wanted to know more about their story and obviously I've not watched the first two so that I'm at a disadvantage um, with no on the background anyway, but I just, I wanted more of those scenes with uh, Ripley and Clements, like those beautiful relationship scenes, I did want more of that um, and then when the alien came, I found it all a bit, sort of jumping about the place a lot obviously the alien is kind of jumping about the place <laughs> so that's the point but I just felt like I didn't know where to direct my attention in those bits so I kind of needed fed a little bit more as an audience member but then possibly watching the first two films I would get into that more so that's something on my part that I would definitely watch the <laughs> the previous films before now yeah uh, it's really funny you say that because it's got me thinking as well where everybody hated the film because they killed off Hicks 
you couldn't get this beautiful relationship with Clemens if Hicks was there because he was kind of the not the boyfriend, but like you know the hero, the hunk, and the two of them work together to kick ass and number two. So that was going to be a relationship that was going to be built on. Like that's what the the foundations of that relationship were built on. What they went through in Aliens, Clemens would have just been pushed to the side. So when when that scene comes where he's killed, it wouldn't have been as impactful. I would still have preferred Hicks to be in there, but you're right, you wouldn't have that scene. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I actually forgot to mention one point which I really did like, and it's literally a single line. It's right at the start when um, Ripley has just sort of come round and Andrews says to her um, about being amongst all the prison prisoners, they don't want ripples in the water. And I thought that was such a clever line, um, obviously because her name's Ripley. Um, mm-hmm. But I just thought that was a really well done line and I would love, love to see more of that as well. Yeah. yeah. Just very, very briefly, the very, very start when the 20th Century Fox iconic image comes up and there's the famous 20th Century Fox art fanfare and it stops halfway through I don't. You need to watch it again to see that. And it's just, it's chilling. It's absolutely chilling. I can remember, if you think of a film you've looked forward to for years and you're sitting in the cinema, if it's Star Wars, whatever it is, and you're like that, and you hear, you see Lucasfilm coming or whatever, you get goosebumps. Well, 20th Century Fox, fanfare starts, and halfway through, they, they destroy it, and they put in Elliot Goldenthal's depressing, bleak music, and, it's, and it just sets the tone. And I can remember watching it, oh my, I loved it. I love little sort of things like that. So so the ripples in the water, the 20th Century Fox fanfare being interrupted to change the tone and set, and set the scene in the film. These are really powerful things. And I think, I think to be fair to Alien 3, it requires more analysis and more dissection. And people not necessarily are willing to give that, but I think we've discovered today that when you start to break it down, think, actually, what was all the controversy about? We know we know that you know the main story choices that were made. But actually, when you break it down, there's really powerful scenes. There's great acting. It looks great. So, so why does it get that score in Rotten Tomatoes? And I suggest that people going back to see it again would see it in a different light and think, actually, do you know what? It's actually a pretty good film. Well, hopefully, after this podcast, to see it in a different light, you know. <laughs> um, also, I just had a few other quick notes here. Um, yeah, I just wonder what you think of this. So in the original Alien, you find out that it's attacking the crew members, but in the director's cut of that as well, you find out that it's putting them into like the nest. And then Aliens, you find out there's the Queen Alien, it's like the Queen Bee, and that's the reason they're kidnapping the victims. And uh, But what is the point of the Alien in Alien 3? You're right, Gary, and I'm glad you brought that up, because that's actually reminded me um, with something I've thought about for 28 years, that was the other huge reaction from the fans. That the, the first one is this kind of fear of the unknown. The second one is the queen and the hive and everything else. It's almost like, like ants or termites in space that are pretty much indestructible. And the third one, it's just one alien. And it just, it just kills people. Is that it? So that's a really good point. And that, that was strongly argued. When we, when we were in art college way back in the early 90s, people were really annoyed at that. It's like, yes, okay, you've made it evolve physically, but is that it? You know, and the, the Jaws in Space thing works the first time round, but if it's just an a, a individual creature, it just kills people. Is that it? So that's a really good point. I think I actually hadn't thought about that for years. And that I can remember looking back, there's a lot of heated debates, like Star Wars now, with my pals, that, is that it? Do you know, is that what you're going to do with what Giger created, this biomechanical, organic, hideous devil of a creature, and it just goes out and kills people? So, 
So yeah, I think that's that's important. That's brought up as well because because I, I guess there's some nostalgia that I'm I'm fond of the film, but that at the time was a, a, a you know a, a strong point to criticise and rightly so. Yeah, and another part that's criticised is the main hallway chase scene where they're closing all the hatch doors to try and block it in, and a lot of people hate that because they can't quite work out what's going on. The fact that you don't quite know what's going on and where the creature is and who's closing what door, that's how they would feel trying to block that in. So it's giving you that same confused feeling. So I actually love it. And I do love the POV shots, the shots that are like the point of view of the alien. And it's kind of like Jaws under the water, isn't it? Like less is more. And just the speed that that camera goes down those hallways is is phenomenal. It is, it is, and that's. I think it was kind of done. But I was watching the making of, and I think if we're all honest, we'd like to think we're the action hero. But I think if a real alien came, we'd be like, <laughs> you know, we'd be running like hell. Of course, you would. That's an instinctive reaction, and that's what the prisoners were doing. But the 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 shots going through were done with a steady cam, and I was watching a, a making of thing, and the the original cinematographer was unwell and had to leave the project. They brought someone new in, and somebody spun the steady cam. And they looked at it, and it was by accident they discovered that it looks like the alien is running along the ceiling, which was much more powerful than the actual dodgy special effects. When you spin that steady cam, and then it's, I thought it was a really good scene. So, yeah. so I agree with you. I can see why some people wouldn't like it, but I thought it was really powerful. This is actually more of a, a nitpick for the, the franchise in general, but the chestbuster, uh, when, when the facehugger lays the embryo, the egg, the time between that happening and the chestbuster busting out, it changes in like every film and in every death, and it it actually reminds me of like in The Walking Dead. Actually, I know we mentioned that earlier, where like when someone gets bitten, like it always changes how long it takes for them to actually turn into a zombie, and it's kind of the same thing here. It's like how long the story needs will be how long it is. So yeah, no consistency is like what we love. You know, you mm-hmm. want to. You want to know that if that chestbuster um, or if the embryo is laying in, some, in one of the characters, they've only got 10 minutes to go or something or they've got an hour to go. So you know that. And then if something changes, that makes it interesting in a different way as well. Yeah, you're right. If we knew exactly how long it takes, if they told us, like in one of the previous films, it takes six hours, right? Then that's like basically putting a ticking time bomb on your screen. Are they going to get their job done in those six hours? Absolutely. Gordon, anything else uh, on the film from yourself? Not really, but I, I think a, a sort of general point was, you know, this film, 28 years later, look how much um, conversation it can generate. So it's, 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 you know, I think it's got to be frustrating for filmmakers when somebody goes, oh, that was rubbish. And maybe it was, but I think, I don't think we could reduce Alien 3 to that, that some people might have reduced it to that one word. Um, I think it's it's not. I think it's flawed. Um, I think there's lots of great stuff in there, but the, the very fact that we can chat about it, you know, nearly thirty years later, means there's there's a lot of good in it, and there's a lot of brilliant filmmaking, really brilliant filmmaking. If you look what David Fincher's gone on to do with Seven and Fight Club and Social Network and everything, he's one of the top filmmakers in the world. So so they got the right guy. It was just the 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 alignments didn't come quite, you know, the stars weren't quite aligned for that particular project at that particular time. Um, but yeah, just in general, there's, it's, a, it's a very interesting film and, and I would urge people to go and see it and make up their own mind. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, just quickly, Gordon, uh, just off the top of your head, uh, what would you give out of 10 for Alien? 10. Aliens? 10. Alien Resurrection? Oh, God. Top of my head, 4. What? Uh, Prometheus? Oh, the single most disappointed I have ever been in a cinema. However, I've watched it since because that was 30 years of hype, loving the whole, you know, what's this horseshoe spaceship, the space jockeys, what's the origin? And I was crushingly disappointed with Prometheus. I've watched it since, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go five out of 10 for Prometheus. Okay. And Alien Covent? Six. Yeah, I agree with mo- I, I agree with most of them, and maybe well, maybe another day I'll ask you about Alien versus Predator. Oh, <laughs> is there a minus? <laughs> cool. So that moves uh, quite nicely on to our final ratings for Alien Three. Have they changed? Have they stayed the same, Gary? Uh, I've watched this so many times, and I'm going to stick with my seven point nine. Again, seven first time round, eight this time round, and I know watching it in twenty years' time, you'll probably enjoy it more. You probably enjoy it even more. Yeah. For me, um, I'm going to keep my rating the same as five out of ten. But after our conversation, watching it again, I know it will be different. I know I will be picking up on different things. So I'm really excited to do that. Yes. So just now we will take a short break, and we will be back with you for our quick fire questions round and some fun facts and fun short films to watch. She won't ever know the hardship and grief for those of us left behind. We commit these bodies to the void with a glad heart. For within each seed, there is a promise of a flower. Within each death, no matter how small, there's always a new life. A new beginning. Amen. Here we go. So we are back with our quick fire questions round. So Gary and I have five questions each for you, Gordon. These are no reflection of your knowledge on the film because they will be quick fire. So just give us whatever comes out. So what is the dog called at the start of the film? Spike. Yes. How many prisoners were there at the facility? 12. What? 25. Why doesn't the alien kill Ripley? Because she's got a little baby queen alien inside her. What is used to cremate Hicks and Newt's body? I don't know what it's called. <laughs> it is a big hot thing. <laughs> What's for, for, for molten lead or smelting or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I, I'll give you the point. I just called it the furnace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what is Ripley's first name? Ellen. What company owns the factory? Wayland Utani. Boo! <laughs> yes. yes. Why is Ripley told to shave her head? Because 
There's lots of non-paying guests in the prison. Little creepy crawlies, bugs, and yucky things. So it's there's an infestation. Yeah, yeah. Great. And who lets the alien out of the blast doors? Maybe Golic, the crazy one. Yes, yes. My final question: What does Clement say Newt's cause of death is? Ah, it's a pathogen. It's a disease. Cholera. Oh no, 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 no! And um, she drowned in the cryo tube. Yes. <laughs> Uh, my last one is, what is the nickname given to Aaron based on his IQ? It's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? And I love how it goes through the film. And it's 85 and we've got no idea what it is until it comes out and it makes sense. Again, brilliant writing in Alien 3. Yeah, IQ. Yeah. Well done, yes. <laughs> yes, well done. Okay, so to round off the show, um, we each obviously tell our little interesting fact of the day. So my interesting fact of the day is such a cute one that I found. A baby puffin is called a puffling. I thought that was, I honestly thought that was adorable. And um, puffin parents actually carry 10 fish around in their mouth at any one time to feed their little pufflings. But the record is 62 fish in a puffin's mouth. I don't know how they found that out, but I just thought it was adorable. That, that's quite cool. Yeah, that is. I wonder how they managed to get 66 fish or 62 fish 62. in without without dropping one out. <laughs> you know? It's that it's that um, that marshmallow game, isn't it? Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my fact is the oldest unopened bottle of wine was found in a roaming tomb that's over 1,600 years old. Wow. It's, yeah, it's sealed with a thick stopper of wax and olive oil. And whatever alcohol was in there is probably long gone now. Um, and the last wee fact on that is only one man will handle the bottle simply because everyone else is just too afraid. <laughs> Fair enough. Gordon, do you have a fun fact for us? I do. And I'm, I'm with you on this, Ashley. I think we've talked about, you know, so many yucky things and scary monsters and stuff. I'm going with cute. So we've got two house bunnies called Misty and Monty. And they're, I mean, when I was a kid, we kept bunnies outside and, and hutches and you kind of push grass through the chicken wire and somebody realised how intelligent they are and they're beautiful animals. So these gorgeous little fluff balls hopping about all the time. But I discovered today there's something called a binky and it, <laughs> it describes, because bunnies, obviously they can't talk, but they don't make any sound at all, the poor wee things, right? Seem they're really happy. They do a jump and they shake their head and their ears. And my bunnies do it all the time, or our bunnies do it all the time. And it's called a binky. That's a bunny binky. That's your fact of the day. I love it. I, love I it. want a bunny just so I yeah. can see it do a binky. <laughs> <laughs> so now just to also go into promoting some other people's work um, that we are loving at the moment, we're going to share some short films that we love. Um, so mine is one that I've watched a few times and it is, it's a really hard hitting short film. It's very short. It's... Um, under four minutes long it's called mind yourself and it's directed and written by bonnie mccray it's beautiful writing and um it deals with the suicide rates in dundee and specifically men's mental health um it's a really powerful important film and i would urge anyone to watch this it's on her website and i think it's also on youtube yes it's on youtube and um, so i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so my short film, I went with an animation this episode. I actually first seen it as it screened at the HB Film Festival last year. So Gordon, you might have actually seen it as well because I know you were there. 
So it's called The Curious Child and it's a real, really beautiful animation with a lovely voiceover and it's by, I'm probably going to mispronounce this surname, Howard Voz Films. Nice, nice. Gordon, have you got a short film you'd like to share? I have, guys. I, I apologise. This is going to sound like shameless self-promotion, but hey, that's what actors do. do there's it. A reason for it. There is a reason. There's a film called Writer's Block, short film, and it's only just been available in the last week on YouTube, so it's the only reason I'm bringing it up. And it's written directed by Callum Shields. It's a beautiful story. Um, Dee McGloy is a cinematographer, and it's very Scottish, and it's gorgeous music. I happen to be in it as, as a dad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but honestly, it's lovely to see. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of Scottish filmmakers getting together and just making stuff happen. And I would, I would just say a wee bit more on that, just very briefly, that as creative people, we all thrive in the realm of the imagination. That a film set is that realm. You step into that realm. It's a place of trust. It's a place where you will get through anything. And it's, it's just when I saw the film for the for the first time, it's now on YouTube. It just reminded me of stepping that realm. And I think we need that realm more than anything these days, more than ever before. And let's just keep going. Let's keep pushing on. So it's writer's block dash short film on YouTube. Yeah, and I've actually seen this film already and I can recommend it. It's a lovely, lovely wee film. And also uh, Dee, the cinematographer, she's up and coming as well. And we should also just be supporting female filmmakers as well. So it's great. It's great to see her thriving. Absolutely. I can't wait to check that out. Thank you for sharing that, Gordon. Um, and thank you so much for coming on our uh, podcast. It's been great to hear your insight and to chat with you. I feel like we could have gone on way longer and just spoken so much about a film that I thought I would have not much to say about. Um, can you let our listeners know where they can find you and your work? So um, I have a, an Instagram called Scott Street Style, um, which has been running for a few years now. I've been shining the spotlight in the best of Scottish creativity for some time. Initially sort of fashion textiles, and I've held events in New York, Los Angeles, Berlin. And now, I've, as I've evolved, now I'm, I'm sort of focused on acting. It's more about sort of the filmmaking community. So, so, so join in and you, you can see what we're up to. And I'm very keen to promote uh, what's happening and get people working together um, more now than ever. Um, so yes, yeah, Scott Street Style. And there's a few projects being involved in recently that really excited to, to share with you guys. Yeah, and we would quite like to thank you as well, because we've seen a lot of activity from your Twitter feed and stuff. We're sharing the podcast. So thanks for that as well. Of course. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you. Um, and I'm Ashley Sutherland. You can find me at Ashley Sutherland on Instagram or at Ash Sutherland 4 on Twitter. And I'm Gary Hewitt and my handle is HewittGPro and that's across the board, Instagram, Twitter, etc. And of course, you can keep up to date with the Choose Film Podcast on Instagram at Choose Film Podcast, on Twitter at Film Choose, and please do email us your thoughts, reviews, any films you want us to have a look at uh, at choosefilmpodcast at hotmail.com. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Choose Film, a real retrospective podcast, and join us next time with guest host Jennifer Mackey, who has chosen the film Jaws for us to look at. So I'm very excited to look into that. And we actually spoke a little bit about Jaws today, so this is going to segue yeah. very nicely. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Goodbye.